following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, welcome back, friends, to another edition of Larger for Life, a catechism on the Westminster—no, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. We talk a lot about the catechism, but the podcast is not the same as the catechism, but we're glad you're here, just the same. We have been working our way through some of the covenant theology questions. They have served as a a wonderful bridge, a wonderful segue between theology proper, doctrine of God, and anthropology— and sin, homartiology, and we're about to get into that section of the Catechism about Christology, doctrine of Christ the Savior. And so these few questions, 33, 34, 35, 36, are really about covenant theology, and they've served as a wonderful bridge uh, between that doctrine of sin on into the way of the doctrine of Christ. So this morning, we're going to take a good long look at this wonderful question number 36. Question number 36. Let me read the question and the answer, and then we'll have some good discussion on it. Number 36. Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man, in two entire distinct natures, and one person forever. So that's question number 36, and our good friend Nick Bullock is—we're so glad to have him back with us here today. So I know he's got some some erudite, insightful, profound thoughts as to the content and the doctrine disclosed here in this question and answer. So let me kick it on over to him. Nick, what do you think about uh, question number 36 here? Brilliant, as always. Thank you for your insightful contributions. We really couldn't do it without you. But, you know, meanwhile, our friend Derek over here has some some less insightful things to say than Nick just did, but we'll let him say them just the same. I know he's got a lot of thoughts. He's done, uh, you know, he's got some emptied himself of all but love. I think that's Derek's favorite line in all of hymnody. Is that right, Derek? Well, my ears are bleeding. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, uh, yeah, so before we even get to that, which I guess we can get into that, but I, I wanted to make just some brief observations about um, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is the only mediator. That's what it says at first. But then it says, who being the eternal son of God of one substance and equal with the father. And that's important because sometimes we can uh confess the co-equality of Jesus with the Father or Christ with the Father. Um, but then in our formulation of it or our teaching or whatever the case is, say things that undermine this very idea. And this line, in my opinion, strikes at the heart of those who would hold to eternal functional subordination. I would argue that no one who holds to eternal functional subordination or any of the other acronyms that are used can rightly be ordained in the PCA. 
and primarily because of this and other questions and other things on the Trinity. Okay. Um, I would say that it, you would, you should not ordain the PCA because eternal functional subordination says uh, they might want to confess that there's some of one substance. Uh, some would even say equality with the father. But really what EFS does is rob the eternal son with that equality. Uh, with, uh, they rob the son of his equality with the father. And in fact, some even argue that the father has ontological primacy over the son. And um, and that's remarkable. Bruce Ware says that actually, that he has ontological primacy over the son. And um, the reason I'm bringing this up is this has made its rounds again. The debate kind of went on a ceasefire there for a while, but now it's stirred back up because um, people like Doug Wilson um, hold to some version of EFS that uh, the father has authority uh or the father just is authority and the son is submission. None of that is allowed by question 36 of the catechism. In fact, um, I like how you might say, well, wait a minute though. It was the son who was sent in time and it was the son who was uh, to be the mediator, not the father. And, I was, and we can get into more technical discussions about that. But as William Perkins says, Perkins says that the son was not subject to the um, to, to the planning of the decree itself because he, being equal with the Father and the Spirit, working together, decreed all things, but he's only subject to the execution of it. So this line, we need to, to really hold the line on the quality of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. Okay, sermon's over. I know I just went in. I'm, I'm me. There was no lead into that. No intro. I just blistered it. No, that's that's great, Derek. And I'm glad you said what you said because EFS or ESS has been such a well. I mean, maybe not in the the, the wider world, but certainly in Reformed theological land, it has been a a hot button issue since circa 2015, 2014, and there's been all kinds of misunderstanding. And it, it's good to it's good to be aware of that, and it's good to be for our listeners to be aware of that, to have the theological categories for it, and to know where the Westminster standards, where the Catechism uh, lands on this discussion of this contemporary gross misunderstanding of what is commonly called eternal functional subordination. Spin, you had a follow up as well. I do. And I just want to commend to the listeners, Derek wrote an article for Reformation 21 on how the Trinity debates are not over. And I think it's really helpful for our listeners who, for whom these debates are unfamiliar to go and to listen to what Derek has to say in that article, because I think it will familiarize you with what's at stake. And I wanted to ask Derek, why would people maintain Function, uh, eternal functional subordination or eternal subordination of the son, Derek? What's the cash value? What would drive somebody to undermine what question 36 is talking about with the consubstantiality or the co-substantiality and equality of the son with the father? Why would they press the father is authority, the son is submission? That might help dip yeah. people's well, toes into the pool. That's a good question. So the... Um the reasons for doing so 
I think for the most part are very well intentioned. Okay. So let me, let me first say that much of it comes from some who want to hold on to complementarianism. They want to hold that because if, um, you know, you look at Paul's argument for marriage and how um, he tries to relate the mystery of the the Trinity to marriage. And um, so people want to say, well, a wife is to submit to her husband and that doesn't diminish the quality with her husband. They're both equally created in the image of God, but she takes on a different role. So she submits to her husband as Christ submits to the father. And um, and so they want to uphold complementarianism. And so they see this language of authority and submission in the Godhead. And um, and and see that as the grounds for their complementarianism. Um, now, this is not a, a show based on that, but I think that's a faulty argument for a number of reasons. The second thing is, um, again, this is another well-intentioned thing. They want to. um be true to scripture. Okay. We all want to be true to scripture. The way they read scripture here is they read for whatever reason. Okay. And there's many, they want, they see what, um, Christ is like in his economy. Okay. Or in the economy of salvation where he is submissive to the father and they, they would see that as maybe an natural, outflowing or however you want to phrase it, but it's true of the imminent Trinity, the imminent life of God. And so they see scripture and they want to uphold scripture and they say, okay, well, Christ submits to the father and a father always is over his son. That's how language works. Right. Um, so they, there's a many reasons why they would want to do that. And they're not trying to undermine the historic Christian faith and they're not trying to undermine um, what the scriptures teach. They're not trying to un- undermine um, that he is one substance and co-equal with the father. They're not attempting to do that. Okay. Their intentions are good, but there's just a lot of errors with their theological reasoning and their hermeneutics. So the reason they would want to is all good, um, but the results are bad. Matt, did you had some. Yeah, Derek, I, I appreciate all that is being said, and I especially appreciate Spin asking that question because this did arise through some conversations on the marital union, complementarianism, things like that. Uh, but I also think, and we've talked about the Trinity before on this uh, show, there's, there's an attempt, isn't there, to try to explain the Trinity, especially the begottenness of the Son, as we're talking about here, in terms that we can understand. And I can't remember exactly what um, early church father it was, but he said something along the lines of that the begetting of God must be honored in silence or or, or something along those lines, because quite frankly, it's something that uh, we can't fully grasp, isn't it? Um, You know, I heard one preacher say that Athanasius uh, was... Uh, one who would die to defend the eternal begottenness of the son, uh, but he would also kill you if you tried to explain it. Um, uh, you know, it was one of those moments in church history and, and even today that that sometimes uh, we have to be okay with not fully understanding how the son could be eternally begotten of the father, right? 
Yes, there need the we mystery is not a bad word. Okay, mystery right. is a good thing. Yes, that's, and a that's lot of right. people want to quote Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: "The secret things belong to the Lord." And that's true. But let's keep reading the rest of the passage. There are things that are revealed, and we want to make sure that what is revealed we understand rightly. Um, but there is a level of mystery, right? Eternal begetting. We only really have uh, a mind that can understand a temporal, you know, begetting. You know, you through your fathers, and so you know you've begat children, okay, and you necessarily in that begatting have authority and primacy over them, and even temporally have um, came before them, and so. But that's not the way it is with um, Jesus, right? In his humanity, sure, but as the eternal Logos, all right, the second person of the Trinity, that it's an eternal begetting. There is a it, this is how it's always been outside of time, pre-time, eternal, everlasting, however you want to phrase that. Um, it is um, it is an eternal game. We just don't have um, we just don't have uh, a category for that. You know, we have we try to accommodate um, use accommodative language to understand these things, but it only takes us so far. So we we don't want to. Um, I appreciate, you know, a lot of, believe it or not, okay, I, I appreciate a lot of things that Cornelius Van Til said. One of the things he said was we need to be fearlessly anthropomorphic. And so we want to be able to say what scripture says about God, even when it uses accommodative language. But we need to understand the limitations of it. And we need to be able to just say, you know, there's some mystery here. So I know we need to move on. There's other parts of this catechism question, but I think it's important just to um, just to get that out there, get it on people's radar. And there's a lot of good material, um, both academic and lay level on these subjects. And uh, you can always email me and ask me some questions if you need to. We'll <laughs> include your email, social security number phone number, blood type, all in the show notes, so that way people can get in touch with you about these very important questions. Mother's maiden name. Make sure, you add, his, uh, make sure you add his credit card number, just for uh, my information. Um, Absolutely. I would, I would love that, actually. Well, what Derek is stressing here, and it's so essential, and we're going to talk about this, my favorite series of questions in the larger catechism is questions 38, 39, and 40, on why the mediator needed to be God, why he needed to be man, and why he needed to be God and man. And we would say this, that it is essential that if we are going to have faith in Jesus Christ as our mediator, as our substitute, and as our Savior, we need to know his person, and we need to know his work. So that's really the flow of the larger catechism at this point. It's introducing us to the preciousness of his person. And while we cannot fully understand and comprehend the magnitude and the infinitude and the breadth and the depth and the height of his deity, we do know very clearly, based on what has been revealed, as Derek said so well, that Jesus is God. He's not a God. He's not lesser God. He's not God Jr. or a lesser derivative divinity, but he's God. He's of one substance and equal with the Father in being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, everything. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And in the fullness of time, 
this God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire and distinct natures. Can we talk about entire and distinct natures for a second? Because some of our listeners, maybe you've heard your pastor use this language, the hypostatic union. Things get a little bit screwy when we don't understand the hypostatic union, that it's not too partial or too kind of mixed and there's an amalgamation of natures, but we believe in two entire and distinct natures. I want to kick that around. Why is that important to maintain? How do we see this inseparable and yet distinct marriage of these two natures? And where would you point our listeners to in Scripture to defend this, guys? Well, I just appreciate the clarification. So you're saying that the hypostatic union is not an organization of collective bargaining for electricians, because that's the impression and the understanding I've had up till now. I'm really glad you're on the pod, and I'm going to get you in touch with Derek Bright as soon as humanly possible, okay? So I'm, I'm, We're glad you're here, Sean. <laughs> Spin, I think that's up. <laughs> I think that's a really good um, question because, you know, you go to places in our Bibles like John chapter 10, verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, right? Talking about the, uh, talking about the Trinity, uh, using that Nicene Creed language, light of light, God of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made, you know, being very reminiscent of that Hebrews chapter uh, one language. And and so, I mean, just to put this very kind of practically, right, all throughout the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, we, we see uh, his opposition being the religious establishment um, who should know uh, who he is uh, as the promised Messiah, as God in the flesh, um, and yet uh, they hate him. Uh, and in fact, they uh, constantly are plotting to kill him. And why are they doing so? Because Jesus steps into creation and he begins to preach this message that when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am God uh, in the flesh. Uh, I am the very God man. Um, you're seeing before your eyes the, the hypostatic union, how uh, you can see me. Uh, and be truly man, and also uh, I can act, uh, and I can be truly God. Uh, and so they they are, you know, they are they are angry at him. Uh, they are spitting venom at him, attempting to to figure out ways to kill him because uh, he has claimed to be God, uh, and that is uh, exactly true. And, and we think about this idea of revealing or revelation. And, and I want to go to that Hebrews 1, uh, 1 and 2 text because it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken or revealed himself to us by his son. Uh, that is a function of God, revealing himself as son, uh, who he appointed as the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And so we 
we see there in those first two verses of Hebrews chapter one, uh, God uh, functioning fully, truly, completely as son, uh, but also it's reminding us that this son is the heir of all things and also God who created uh, the universe by the simple word of his mouth. Um, I'm going to turn it over here in just a moment. But, you know, we've heard this constantly being uh, said from pulpits and in commentaries and, and and things like that, that, you know, the reason in which Jesus could speak to the winds and the waves and cause them to cease is because they are still, you know, they're, they're hearing the voice uh, that spoke them into existence. When Jesus stands and says, stop it, peace be still, uh, they're hearing the same voice, God's voice, who created them out of nothing. Um, and so he is truly God and truly man, um, co-equal. You know, those 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 natures are uh, bound up in one person, um, if you will. I wanted to note at the earlier end of the answer, I mean, there's everything here that's been said should be said, and we're sort of bouncing all around the, the, the catechism answer, which is great. Um, at the beginning portion of question 36, it just struck me. The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. We spent the last two episodes talking about the covenant of grace and how that covenant of grace exists in two different, well, multiple different administrations, but two broad different administrations, the Old Testament, Old Covenant era, and the New Covenant era. But do notice how the catechism asserts and assumes the cohesive unity of the covenant of grace. There aren't two mediators. There, there aren't multiple mediators. There is the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's not as if there was a different mediator in the Old Testament times, and then Jesus came in, in his incarnation, now he's the mediator of the covenant of grace in the New Testament times. No, no. There's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the only mediator of the covenant of grace. Um, and that's just, that's just wonderful imagery to, to be reminded of, I think. You know, we think of at a human level, you think of Moses as the mediator, as the go-between, if you like, for the covenant at Sinai, the go-between uh, between God Almighty and the people of Israel. Well, that's an administration of the covenant of grace that we, we're seeing here at a covenant of Sinai at an earthly vantage point. So fly up into the stratosphere 30,000 feet above, and instead of looking at all the distinct uh, administrations of that covenant— it's as if we're looking at from the view from above, from 30,000 feet, the view from the heavens of the covenant of grace as a unified whole. And who's the mediator of it? Well, it's not Moses. It's not David. It's not any of these folks. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that spans throughout time and eternity. And that's just a wonderful thing that that catechism reminds us of here. That might be an objectionable thing um, in some quarters of Christianity to say that there's the covenant of grace and there's only one sole mediator, and it's the Lord Jesus, both in Old and New Testament eras. But that is certainly the position of Westminster here. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, Sean. And I did want to just list a couple things here for our listeners. Um, you know, Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman, made under the law. You know, John 1.1 1, 1, and also John 1.14 um, and that language really in John about the word became the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, you know, really is that word tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Um, let me, if I can speak just briefly to Philippians chapter two, 
where um, in verse six, it says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself. Okay. And sometimes people, uh, well, again, well-intentioned. Okay. So when I, I want to make sure I say that because sometimes I get a little bit of um, helpful pushback that uh, I can be a little harsh and, and that's true. So I appreciate the pushback. So when I, when I criticize here um, someone's position, I'm not doing it and saying they have bad intentions. Okay. So just, so if you're, if your preacher says this language, if your favorite song has this language, your favorite sermon, your favorite theologian, I'm not trying to poke you in the eye. Okay. But maybe a little bit. Um, so we speak of in Philippians that the son has emptied himself and sometimes people say, well, what did he empty himself of? And of uh, all but all love. love right? and, uh, Sorry, Charles Wesley. No, no, yeah, no, no, no. Wesley blew it on that one. So but they'll say things like, well, um, you know, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew and Mark tell us that the son doesn't know the day or the hour. So that means he emptied himself of omniscience. Um he laid aside his privileges. Some would say he laid aside divine rights and those things. We don't actually want to go that route because without intending to, when we say that the son emptied himself of omniscience, omnipresence, something like that, we are actually not, you know, you want to uphold the true humanity of Christ, but what we're actually doing is, striking at his deity mm-hmm. because true deity and true godness okay can't be altered or augmented um by removing divine attributes he would no longer be god in that sense and he'd no longer be co-equal with the father as we talked about a minute ago that's exactly so what right. we want to say is when going to philippians 2 6 and 7 and if i can i'll just bring that up very quickly um I read 2.6 earlier, um, but this is important. So Philippians 2.6, who, and I'm going to read from the New American Standard. All right. Not the King James this time. Actually, I'm going to read from the King James because it's a better translation um, overall, but better translation of this passage. So Philippians 2.6, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So here in Philippians, um, and your, your translation may say in verse seven, he emptied himself. I, I don't think that's actually a helpful translation, um, but it's that word kenosis. And we need, so we don't want to say, well, he emptied himself of some divine attributes. The text actually tells us the nature of his um, emptying. Mm-hmm. It tells you in the very next clause. Um, if you read the New American Standard, okay, for example, it says, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. How? He took the form of a slave. Not that he lost any divine attributes, but that he assumed a human nature to his person. Okay, now we have two natures that are complete yet distinct uh, 
in one person. Okay. They're united in one person. They don't bleed together, but they're not two different persons. Okay. It's one person with two whole and, 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 uh, but yet distinct natures. And, um, so his emptying wasn't a, a subtraction. Rather, it was an assumption taking to himself humanity, mm -hmm. um, not, mm -hmm. not killing off any of his divine attributes, keeping those, but then I don't want to say adding actually, but assuming, uh, nature taking to himself a human nature. So we want to, I know, I know this episode, we've gotten a little kind of technical on some things and, you know, we try to not do that too much on here, but it's important that we, we maintain because only if, as, and Spin alluded to this earlier, only if Christ retains all of his divinity and has true humanity united to himself, only if those two natures are complete, do we have a mediator. If he loses divine attributes, such as omniscience and all those things, he loses his godness and he ceases to be our mediator. So we have to have both natures united in one person without losing. Right. So I just wanted to, I wanted to throw that out there again. There's good resources out there, but um, I just wanted to make that note. No, that's, that's good. I'm glad you did. And and I, we, I think I don't want to put words in his mouth, so I won't, I won't. I'll just say, I think, I think that a pastor and theologian that we both respect, Derek explained it that way in a helpful way in seminary of he didn't, he didn't take things away. He didn't divest himself. He didn't lose things. That's not what emptying means, but I think he used the phrase subtraction by addition. And of course, he nuanced that the way you did too. Of you know, don't don't misunderstand addition there, but yeah, by assuming something extra, for want of a better word, assuming something that he formerly did not have. That's the human nature. Uh, that's what made the that's what made the 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 emptying, so to speak, becoming that form of a bondservant of a slave. And by the way, we were joking about it earlier. Uh, emptied himself of all but love. That's why. The Trinity Hymnal and the Trinity Psalter Hymnal so helpfully edit the language in that hymn, and can it be? Because it doesn't read that way according to Wesley's original language. They edited it to say, humbled himself so great his love. Christ didn't empty himself of all but love. No, he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, humbled himself so great his love for his people. So just be aware of that as you, uh, that not all editions of hymnals are made the same. You know, something I'd like to touch on. Uh, regarding this is whenever Westminster makes this point, uh, there is some historical and doctrinal background that they have. And, and of course, it's the medieval church. It's uh, the Roman Catholic Church, their doctrine of the mediatorial work of priest, not only the mediatorial work of human priest, uh, priest right before them, but also uh, their false doctrine of a and ascended Mary, uh, a mediatrix. And so you have these two aspects of the priestly ministry of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, of course, they wouldn't deny uh, the idea of Christ's mediatorial work. However, they would place additional mediators or vicars between us and God outside of Jesus Christ. And so the exclusivity of the larger catechism here, the only mediator is is very particular. Um, they're they're making it abundantly clear. We haven't uh, an earthly priest that's in our local parish. We haven't uh, likewise a a bishop or a vicar in Rome or any other city, nor even a transcendent 
Mary uh, to go through, but simply Jesus Christ. And there is direction to our prayer and direction to the hope of the one who would plead our case and plead his grace in the ears of the God of heaven. And so they're really making a unique uh, doctrinal distinction to correct uh, the Roman view. Um, but also to to the point of what they're saying, they're not just saying, hey, Rome's wrong. I mean, they are saying that, um, but they're teaching the true doctrine of the sufficiency of Jesus. I think that's why <clears throat> we have the language of exclusivity tied to the language of divinity. But here the language has particular reference to to Christ's relationship eternally with the Father. And so there is superiority here uh, to any earthly priest or uh, to a Marian mediator uh, between us and God. He is the eternal Son of God. He's not just a God-bearer. He is the eternal Son of God. He's not just an ordained priest. He's not a vicar upon the earth. None of these things. No, rather, he's the one <clears throat> who has always been God and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. There is a better mediator in Jesus Christ, not only a singular mediator, but a much better one. Nick, that's so helpful. And, and to piggyback off of what you just said and what Derek was mentioning uh, before that, uh, you know, this in the fullness of time, the catechism says, became man. Now, in the Pentecostal church in which I grew up, we would say something like, uh, at exactly the right time, uh, he became man. Um, this is speaking of uh, the same. But notice what the catechism question says. He became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire and distinct natures and one person forever. Uh, oftentimes we uh, hear church members or or other pastors of of different denominations or contexts, and and they believe now that Christ has ascended, uh, that He does not exist now in in heaven at the right hand of the Father in a fleshly man state. Um, and the Catechism question is saying, no, He's actually still man. Um, he He still has that assumed nature of being truly God and truly man. It's uh, Dr. Doug Kelly, one of my predecessors here in Dillon, South Carolina. He says something along the lines, and I'm not sure that if it's uh, original to him, but he says, the dirt of creation has found its exalted state at the right hand of the Father, right? he, We have uh, a mediator who is both God and man. Therefore, as Nick was saying, we have a great high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father, been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, pleading our case. Um, and and one of the ways that I bring this out for uh, my members uh, beyond uh, the letter of Hebrews, that as Derek informed us in previous episodes, is a sermon by Luke recorded by Paul. Okay. Um, and, and so uh, I go uh, beyond Hebrews and I go to, to the book of Revelation. Hey, stop um, that, that. Reverse that. It's a sermon, sermon by Paul, by recorded, Paul by recorded by Luke. Sorry. Yes. Um, thank you for the correction. I wouldn't want to throw all of our listeners into a tissy. Um, but I go to, 
I go to Revelation, and as the Apostle John is having the uh, heavens open before him, and he is uh, in the Spirit on the Lord's day, seeing all the glories of heaven, he sees uh, the the heavenly courts, all the saints that have gone before us, the elders, the living creatures, the angels. They're worshiping Christ, and they are worshiping him as the Lamb who was slain, right? And so one of the references to that is Revelation 5, 9. And it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so uh, somebody says, well, or somebody asks, you know, well, why would you go there for a proof text on uh, on this topic? And simply because as the as the heavens look upon Christ, they can see that he was a lamb who was slain. Right. Um, they can they can see him uh, as this slain sacrifice for sinners. Um, and so I don't you know, I don't know what Jesus looks like. Um We'll get into the larger catechism 109 here before too long. Uh, he doesn't look like all the pictures in your ladies' parlor, newsflash. But uh, one of the things that which Dr. Kelly has so uh, helpfully helped me understand is that when we see Christ in glory, uh, in his exalted state, we will see the God-man. And just like doubting Thomas, we will see his hands and feet pierced. We'll see his side, uh, you know, the, the wounds upon his side from the spear. And we will say, along with the heavenly courts, here is our sacrifice, our singular sacrifice for sin. And we will do the very same thing. We will worship him. Um, and so I think that is helpful for us to to remind our listeners or to even tell them for the first time, we're wrong uh, if we think that uh, Jesus in his exalted state is not still the God-man. No, the catechism says he is two entire and distinct natures, one person forever. He continues to be both God and man. No, that's exactly. He's so, I, if he, I'm so glad you mentioned that. He so was and continues to be God and man. And yeah, that, that's for people who don't live and breathe uh, theological works and writings the way nerds like us do, it, it might catch them off guard. I remember when I was a seminary student, uh, still learning, very very much a novice into Reformed theology, and one of my pastors said, just as an offhand comment from the pulpit, there is a human being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it kind of caught me off guard, and I thought, well, and I, I'm just thinking in my head, and then I went home and thought about it, and you know, read notes, and you know, didn't run my mouth and thought, no, no, that's right. It just caught me off guard because I'm not used to thinking these categories because of poor training earlier in life. But no, that's right. <laughs> Jesus ascended into heaven, but he, he ascended in that body. He didn't lose it along the ways, and he's seated at, at the Father's right hand, and he still is God and man. There's still that fleshly uh, nature about him. So, yeah, and maybe that catches some of our listeners off guard if you're new to classical theism or, cl- or classic Reformed theology. So uh, it's worth pondering and, and realizing that. Derek. The dust of heaven is now upon the throne of the Father. I am in. <laughs> Hallelujah. How does Doug Kelly say it, Matt? <laughs> I can't do it justice. But that wasn't Doug. That like was what you just said. Silly, yeah, Doug says something actually really good. Now, that was not my Doug Kelly impression. I was just being silly. But 
Um, Doug has a great line about that, right? Like um, that you were saying earlier off off air that um, what was it? Dirt from the earth, or what, how do you say it? Dirt of creation. Yeah, I said it while I was talking. Thanks for listening. Oh yeah, um, I walked away. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. The car is not going to me. I just I, I could me. not handle you any longer. I just had to walk <laughs> away. Um, and the mail lady came in at the right time. In the fullness of time, she delivered the mail. And, <laughs> at uh, exactly the right time. At That's exactly right. the right time. And because I am not Christ, I could not be here and uh, and hearing you at the same time I was I th- there. I think what, what Derek is saying is that the, uh, the Oriental Trading Catalog that came in the mail today is of more interest to him than listening to Matt yammer on about Christology. He found that more. He found Matt so tedious that he'd rather stare at these, you know, eighty-seven pack of spinning tops for VBS catalogs. Hundred percent. Well, 100%. Nick's first comment at the beginning of the episode really just threw Derek for a doozy, and he pretty much thought at that moment that we could stop this episode. Nick has said everything that needs to be said, and just. You know, shut the podcast down. No, you're right. The pro- you know. the profundity there was unmatched and will be unmatched forevermore. Oh my, what have I done? <laughs> I just want to know who gave you the link and allowed you back on the show because uh, Sean fired you last show. You know, I've heard about this. It's terrible, <laughs> but it's totally deserved. I'm just I'm speechless at this. I yeah. <laughs> So you've been you speechless know, for the past number of episodes, Nick. I know. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, some you of them have I, to be pastors, guys. You know, I just you know, I'm saying. Listen here. Um <laughs> you know, we, we could take Derek's comments about his desiring to be here and talk about with the time that we have remaining the extra Calvinisticum, right? You know, that Gesundheit. Thank you. Uh but extra Calvinisticum and how that was sort of originally maybe a little bit of a retort or it was uh, sort of a, a slam against we Calvinists and how uh, it, I think it answers it inadvertently, right? It answers the question. So when Jesus or when the son of God became man, did he altogether leave heaven. So we've talked about the fact that he continues both as God and man in these two distinct natures in one person forever. But during the incarnation, did the son vacate the Trinity? I'm going to ask because of Sean's earlier comment, which was just astounding. Uh, I'll kick it to one of our uh, friends who is, is good on the hypostatic union and knows what that means uh does somebody want to explain with the time that we have left because i think we're going to wrap up after this what extra calvinisticum means and whether the sun was maintaining omnipresence during the incarnation extra calvinisticum i mean you should probably see a doctor for that that's all i have to say extra calvinisticum comes up within the continental debates particularly between the German Lutheran Church and the small handful of Reformed German Lutherans. Sometimes it presses into Alsace-Lorraine, um, but nonetheless, it's it's really pursuing the simple question in quite Lutheran fashion of, well, if he isn't in with and under, if he doesn't maintain uh, this omnipresence in his humanity, and even according to the table in some mystical way, 
so that uh, we have access to him. Then where is he? That was the the great question of the extra Calvinisticum, and it, it all revolved around uh, the doctrine of of the Eucharistic table, and um, it's it's that accusation. Uh, the gross sacramentarians of the Reformed were having this extra Calvinisticum. Uh, well, where is he? The Reformed would say, well, he's in heaven as an ascended Lord, uh, his humanity still in union with his divinity, and then the doctrine would uh, teach the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ uh, at the table. But I, I, I'm guessing what Spin is particularly going back toward is does his divine omnipresence press into or um, mutilate the locality of his humanity during his earthly ministry? I'm guessing. Spence just got up and left uh, the microphone. And, and we would say no. That's, that's, uh, that would be, an, um, that'd be a false doctrine. Uh, that would mean that Christ is in his humanity altered. He's very different than us. Uh, his humanity lacks locality. It lacks the limitation uh, of what all humans actually experience. And so the church has spoken quite uniformly over the centuries, and it's only when we get to uh, really uh, the Reformation debates over the Lord's Supper where you have this mystical union of Christ being uh, evidenced and thought over and even partaken uh, at the table uh, that that the question is being pressed really farther, farther than Chalcedon, farther than Nicaea would have, would have tried to touch upon it. Uh, Derek, you want to add to that? No, I thought that was very helpful. Um, you know, I think that um, I, I appreciate um, our Lutheran brothers, appreciate their high view of the sacraments, um, but we don't want to sacrifice rock Christology uh, on the altar of, of sacraments. You know, we, we don't want to do that. Um we do believe that Christ, and of course, I know this is not about an episode about the sacraments, but, um, you know, we do believe that Christ is present in the sacraments, in the means of grace, right? But spiritual does not mean artificial, right? And so he is spiritually present with us. Um, so, yeah, I, I think everything you said was very helpful. And, um, you know, we just uh, want to we do not want to sacrifice our Christology. You know, we want to keep that intact. Because what's back of that is a Lutheran doctrine that says the humanity of, of Jesus shares or bears up this uh, om, omnipresence of his divinity. Right. Uh, there, there's a lack of distinction uh, within his natures in his person, and that's wildly unhelpful. Um, and, and that will confusions regarding this will arise in your average person, no matter if they're Lutheran or whatever, mm -hmm. or in the church. And they're they're talking about um, really their struggle. And then how can Jesus possibly relate to X, Y, or Z? He's entirely divine. And they're taking that divinity and they're pressing it onto his humanity. So he becomes unrelatable. And I think the larger catechism makes the point that if his humanity isn't pure, if it, if it isn't exactly like ours, exactly as the Bible testifies to, then he can't possibly be an adequate mediator with his human lips pleading our case in the ears of the Father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that you're you're hundred percent right. And um, you know, I, I think that again, it goes back to something that I said um, earlier on in this episode is that we have to allow for 
a certain level of mystery. Mystery is a good thing to have, right? There are times when mystery is appropriate. And um, Christ being one person with two natures is a mystery on some level, right? Um, and um, we want to uphold the historic Christian faith. And um, we especially want to uphold Nicaea and Chalcedon and, and the creeds of the church. And um, but also at the same time have high views of of other areas of, of doctrine. So no, uh, that was very helpful, Nicholas. Friends, we'd like to thank you for joining us once again as we've looked into heaven together, as we've discussed the mediatorial work of Christ, who even presently pleads the benefits of his blood on our behalf to God. We invite you to join us once again next Monday as we take up question 37. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Until then, this has been Larger for Life. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.